Good evening and welcome to Defining Racial Justice in the 21st Century, Competing Perspectives and Shared Goals. Thank you for joining us this evening. I'm Chancellor Kevin Guskowitz, University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. At Carolina, we are committed to promoting democracy and to inspiring a culture of respect and advancing democratic values in our community, North Carolina, and the world. This program aligns with our strategic plan, Carolina Next, Innovations for Public Good. As we described in the plan, Carolina is a higher education institution rooted in the American South. And as a result, a frank confrontation with our region's history of racial and ethnic violence and exclusion is a necessary part of inclusive democratic citizenship. Today's discussion is an important part of this work. As a campus community, we are reckoning with our history and building an understanding of what racial justice would look like in our context. I look forward to our discussion this evening and the lessons we can all learn together. At a time when our country needs it most, we are working constructively to promote respectful dialogue and listening. The program for public discourse is preparing the leaders of tomorrow right now. The program provides students with opportunities to hone and practice communication skills, ultimately enabling them to be better democratic citizens. Tonight is the inaugural event for the UNC Program for Public Discourse's Abbey Speaker Series. I wanna recognize and thank Nancy and Doug Abbey for their leadership and support of this important program. Their gift fortifies the program's mission to empower students with the deliberative capacities they need to strengthen our democratic society. With generous support from the Abbey family, this speaker series will help our students think critically about complex issues and thrive as engaged citizens throughout their, and, and thoughtful leaders throughout their lives. I wanna thank uh, Nancy and Doug for this incredible gift. And now I'm gonna turn it over to uh, Terry Rhodes, Dean of the College of Arts and Sciences to introduce our esteemed moderator and panelists. Thank you. Thank you, Chancellor Guskowitz. Good evening. I am Terry Rhodes, Dean of the College of Arts and Sciences at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And I would also like to welcome you to tonight's program. I join the Chancellor in thanking the Abbeys for their generosity. This new speaker series will enrich the dialogue happening on our campus. A university is intended to be the place where the free exchange of ideas happens, where we learn from one another, and where we deepen our understanding of issues that are central to a democratic society. It is my honor to introduce the panelists who will be speaking on the very timely topic of racial justice in the 21st century. All three of our panelists have been active in racial justice efforts. Senator Valerie Fushi chairs the North Carolina Black Alliance, a network of black legislators advocating for communities of color on a variety of issues. Senator Fushi is a UNC graduate who worked for the Chapel Hill Police Department for 21 years and has been a leader in the local community for decades. She currently represents Orange and Chatham counties in the North Carolina State Legislature. Dr. Ture Reed is a professor of history at Illinois State University. 
He has dedicated his career to researching and teaching about race, class, and inequality in American history. His most recent book, Toward Freedom, The Case Against Race Reductionism, was published in 2020. Dr. Jacqueline C. Rivers is a lecturer at Harvard University and the executive director of the Seymour Institute for Black Church and Policy Studies. Dr. Rivers also founded and directed Math Power, a community-based nonprofit in Boston focused on reforming mathematics education in urban schools. The conversation will be moderated by Jamel Bouye. Mr. Bouye is a columnist for the New York Times and a political analyst for CBS News covering campaigns, elections, national affairs, and culture. I think you will find this evening's discussion an engaging beginning to the Abbey Speaker Series as our panelists share their unique perspectives and have a rich and productive conversation on a topic that affects all of us. In addition to thanking our panelists for joining us tonight, I would also like to express my gratitude to the Department of African, African-American and Diaspora Studies for co-sponsoring tonight's program. I give an extra thanks to Professor Kenneth Jankin for his help with organizing this event. Now, I will turn it over to our moderator, Jamel. Enjoy the discussion, everyone. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us this evening. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Before I get started, uh, everyone should know that there is a, a survey, an optional survey you can take at the end of this discussion and Q&A, so please, uh, if you are inclined to, you should take it. It's two questions, uh, one of them including asking your political ideology. So uh, the organizers really appreciate it if you take that survey. Uh, there is a Q&A, as I mentioned. Uh, ask questions in the Q&A, and we will get to them uh, at the end of our conversation. So that'll be um, a lot of fun. Thank you to UNC for having us. Thank you to the panelists. Uh, a quick comment on the topic of tonight, racial inequality, income inequality have been uh, in the public sphere and in the public mind uh, as critical topics for the last five years, 10 years, if you include Occupy Wall Street, which occurred in 2011. And there's been a tremendous amount of argument and debate and discussion about what these things mean for our society, how we address them, um, what are the consequences of not addressing them? So I hope this evening we can tackle as much as that we can in 40 minutes and maybe provide a little insight. Uh, my first question is going to be for the entire panel, um, and it's going to relate exactly to this, these questions of racial and inequality. Uh, rather than trying, rather than pit them against each other or think about you know, which one should be addressed first, what I'd like each panelist to speak to um, is what is the relation of one to the other? How should we think of income inequality in relation to racial inequality and vice versa? Uh, what, what, how do they interact in our society? Um, how do we disentangle them or do we try to disentangle them at all? Uh, so to start, I'd love for Jackie to begin. Well, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here with all of you. And this is really such an important topic. You know, Jamal, I think you've really 
taken the right approach to this question because income inequality and racial inequality are intricate, intricately intertwined. It is almost impossible to look at uh, factors affecting African-Americans without taking into account uh, levels of poverty. Uh, African-Americans are disproportionately poor. And in fact, the work of Harvard sociologist, Robert Sampson indicates that there are levels of poverty, of concentrated poverty in certain inner cities, for example, Chicago, which are unparalleled among any other uh, ethnic or racial group. So it is, it is really deeply intertwined these two things. And there is a long history of the factors which have created this uh, racial inequality. So racial economic inequality. The other thing I think is important for us to think about is that intraracial economic inequality is greatest among African-Americans. So that we have a greater gap between rich African-Americans and poor Blacks than any other uh, racial or ethnic group. So it's a very complicated phenomenon for us to talk about tonight. Uh, uh, Valerie, could you, could you first the question? Sure, and again, thank you all for having us here tonight. Um, it's hard to add to what Dr. Rivers said. You know, I, when I think about uh, these two um, phenomena, it is so obvious that they are inextricably linked. And so when I, when I think about um, how for years I have marched and protested and advocated for racial equality, um, because that was indicative of the era in which I grew up. I grew up in the 60s during segregation. And so our fight then was for equal access to opportunity, um, opportunities um, for education. And, and then even as we see it now, um, opportunities to ensure that we had access to the ballot box, um, public accommodations, uh, but you know, now over time, as I see how this country is moving with um, racial income inequality, it seems like to me my struggle and my work as a policymaker has been to work towards equity, you know, as it relates to justice and fairness. Because until we can uh, work on those situations that Dr. Rivers just talked about, particularly as it relates to poverty and the limited access that African-Americans have um, for entrepreneurship, um, for um, increasing their wealth by home ownership and all of those things that seem so simple to some folk, but those are the exact same things that keep um, the that keep us from eliminating um, the disparities as we see them. Trey. Yes, process of elimination made clear it was my turn. I was just a little <laughs> slow to unmute. Um, before I weigh in, and I'm going to echo much of what's already been said, I would like to thank you, you all for the opportunity to participate in this event. It's just an honor to be here for a variety of reasons. Uh, the, the esteemed guests 
but also some of the viewers may know that my father is a very proud UNC Chapel Hill alum, and probably no one knows that uh, I was actually born in North Carolina a few few decades ago in Fayetteville, thanks to my dad's work uh, in the GI anti-war movement after he graduated from Chapel Hill. Um, having said that, I, I absolutely would echo the sentiments of my esteemed uh, co-guests uh, who've stated unambiguously that it would be that racial inequality and economic inequality would be inextricably linked. I mean, this is a phrase that I use with my students every day. In fact, earlier this afternoon, they heard me say this, make that very point exactly that way. Um, I, I think in keeping with the points raised by um, Jackie and Valerie, though, I think it's, it is actually useful to consider Jackie's point that intra-racial, uh, the intra-racial wealth gap is actually more pronounced among Black Americans than it is whites. There's slightly more concentrated uh, wealth. Uh, um, the wealth concentration among Blacks in the top 10% is slightly higher than its white counterparts. And it's even a little more high among Hispanics than it is whites. I think as well, Valerie made an excellent point about um, her days as an activist uh, in North Carolina and the protests that she had participate in to open opportunities. Uh, one of the things that I thought was really interesting about that and, and important for listeners to consider is that, and Valerie will correct me if I'm projecting, Valerie had indicated that she was protesting, again, to increase, to open opportunities uh, for, in the public space, in the public sphere, uh, and in the ballot at the ballot box. And I'll, I took this as a subtext economic opportunities, right? Because uh, obviously unambiguous racial discrimination in the workplace uh, and gender discrimination in the workplace disadvantaged African-Americans, uh, you know, irrespective of sex and women irrespective of race. And what I think is often lost in our current discourse is that for much of the, for much of the struggle of black, of black, that black Americans had engaged in for a more equitable society from the 1930s through the civil rights movement centered on access to things like better jobs or, or jobs, period, right? Um, once blacks had access to jobs, then African-Americans certainly and appropriately wanted opportunities for upward mobility uh, in those, those jobs, right? So even during the civil rights movement, while most of us think of the civil rights movement, unfortunately, as, as a moralistic struggle uh, that really didn't center on material benefits. During the 1930s, antecedent to what we would consider the modern civil rights movement, African-Americans in the 30s and 40s had, were, were unambiguous about the inextricable relationship between race, racial inequality and economic inequality. And while the Cold War would have a dampening effect on those sensibilities, in the 1960s, it was transparent that African-Americans understood the unambiguous relationship between racial inequality and economic inequality. And all one has to do is consider the checklist of demands associated with the 1963 March on Washington to appreciate the point that I'm making here. It's unfortunate, I think, in these days that too many of us insist on trying to distill the two to separate racial inequality from class uh, in inequality or economic inequality. And I imagine that we will explore that uh, collectively as a group, that problem that is before us these days. So I'll just shut up there. Uh, so well, I mean, to, uh, oh, 
Uh, I just um, when uh, listening to Ture, you know, sparked a couple of other thoughts. Um, the level of terror that existed in the South uh, in the 50s, um, even though it was declining from the Nadir, was such, and the levels of exclusion that I, I, I'm not going to uh, argue with Ture that, that African-Americans were well aware of the importance for uh, the for economic consequences of addressing this inequality. But it seems to me that there was also really a push to try and simply accomplish levels of freedom, self-determination and autonomy that were broader than and perhaps more focused on issues other than just the economics. You know, uh, King is really seen as taking a turn. So, you know, it's complicated. When he shifts his focus to the to issues of uh, income, when he gets involved with the strike among the garbage collectors in Memphis. So I, 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 I wanna say that it's complicated. And in the same way, if you look at the more recent work um, of Harvard sociologist, uh, yes, Raj Chetty, looking at, even though we recognize there is this greater gap uh, within wealth inequality within African-Americans, it is much more likely for African-Americans in the top quintile, the top 5%, uh, 20% uh, to fall out of that quintile than it is for whites. It's very unusual for whites to fall out of that quintile, not unusual for blacks. And some of that has to do actually with the wealth gap, the fact that all we have to do is miss a paycheck and our economic circumstances are uh, substantially transformed in many cases, probably not those who are in the, 20th, um, in the top 20th percentile. But the point is that there's this underlying lack of wealth which creates instability for the next generation. So just to add some additional thoughts that I think complicate the picture. I mean, both both of these kind of get to the question I was gonna ask next, which is you know, granting that in the present period, there's been a kind of downplaying of um, economic, the economic dimension or the, the, the racial dimension of economic economic equality uh, or vice versa. And granting also that in the kind of classic civil rights era, there was this focus on alleviating the terror of the Jim Crow South. And that focus helped kind of, even if class differentiation wasn't so great, wasn't as great then, there still was some, but the focus on kind of a shared terror helped bring together um, Black Americans into a singular movement. I wonder, if the reason uh, in the present we're not we're the the emphasis on the on the economics of this isn't as strong is precisely because there is this sense among many african americans across class that things like police violence uh, uh things like um or racist violence in general are kind of a an acute threat and given that kind of the spokespeople for um, kind of African-Americans in the media tend to come from the higher deciles of the population. Um, 
that ends up kind of creating a situation where broadly people feel that the violence is the thing that is like very acute. And then the people for whom it is actually especially acute given their class advantages are the ones who are the spokespeople. Um, does this make sense? It makes sense to me. Um, would anyone like to comment on it? Yeah, it was because that was less of a question and more of just sort of like me trying to synthesize everyone's observations here. So, uh, Trey, if you'd like to to jump in. Well, let me just make sure I understand the point, but I'm pretty sure I do that that Jamil, you suggest that one of the reasons that so much of the focus these days um, on racial inequality centers on the shared terror of black Americans across the class spectrum um, in a context in which the people who serve as representatives of the race tend to be from the better classes of blacks, right? Some blacks from higher socioeconomic background, which would by extension displace or might uh, right. displace concerns about economic inequality, which would impact blacks at the lower end of the economic spectrum. And I, I think, so if I've understood that correctly, and it seems as I have, I, I think that says that is correct. Um, I would suggest that that is one of the things that that's going on. Um, that in some ways, the victories of the civil rights movement has a, have, as I think at least one of you have pointed to, created a widening divide between the black haves and the black have nots. And while it was always the case, even in the Jim Crow era, that that one found class divisions among black Americans, black Americans uh, in the 1930s, for, you know, 19 teens, 20s, 30s, 40s, tended to live up, I should say, upper income black Americans in the 19 teens, 20s, 30s, 40s tended to live in communities that encompassed um, lower income black Americans, right? Now the divide is, is much greater and it's actually spatial. Uh, and the concerns that impact black Americans at the upper income uh, tax brackets are actually often enough quite distinct from those in the lower classes. And I think that to expand this point, right, that, that you're getting at about, um, about the implications of this, that is one of the reasons I've long presumed that, you know, the push for things like a living wage policy as a case for racial justice or, you know, healthcare as a citizenship right as a case for racial justice doesn't really resonate with people, even in my tax bracket. And I wouldn't suggest that, that I'm among the most privileged black Americans, but I have good health insurance. I make a nice living. I have a pension and I'm not as concerned about in this stage of my life about income inequality on a personal level as I was, let's say, when I was 22 and working as a permanent temporary employee in New Orleans, Louisiana, um, where I didn't have health insurance and managed to get pink eye from my job twice from the job and had no health insurance to help me get through that that issue, right? And again, this is something, this was an illness that I picked up from the job and there was nothing there for me to help. So I could feel that in a real way as a young man that I wouldn't feel in a real personal way as a middle-aged man. And, um, but the things that black middle-class people would appear to have in common with lower income black folk is this matter of terror. The rub is though, we don't experience the criminal justice system the same way, right? 
I mean, black people in the upper income tax bracket certainly may find themselves the victims of racial profiling, but the vast majority of people who comprise the inmate population um, are poor, right? Be they black, white, or Hispanic. Um, we don't experience, again, the terror of um, racism, as I think Jackie had put it, um, if, I, if I'm not mischaracterizing it, in quite the same way moderated by our class positionality. I know Jackie wants, wants in on this, so that's why I've cut myself off. <laughs> Please. Yeah, so I, I think that, uh, I think it's complicated, Jamal. I think that you have really put your finger on something, but I think obviously the, the visuals that now go with these acts of terror, right? The fact that everybody has a cell phone and there's immediately a video, the power of social media to spread those videos so widely is an added factor. Because there has been a lot of focus on the issue of mass incarceration, even though, as I have to agree with Toure, that is predominantly uh, the experience of the poorly educated high school dropout, primarily black male, but to some extent white males and Hispanic males as well. Uh, there has been a lot of focus on that. The thing that I, that the area of terror, which really is limited to the black, um, primarily to the black working class, is the high homicide rates. And that we are not engaging, we're not taking on. That's also a source, and that also arises from racial injustice. But it's not something that that is easy to engage. I, I, the other thing that I think happens with uh, a lot of the videos about police violence is that it is more clearly a racialized issue. It is usually a white police officer who is uh, brutalizing or perhaps even murdering some black victim, usually a black man. It is easier for us as black people to deal with that. And the problem of the terror in inner city neighborhoods, which is a, a much, I mean, it's, it's a, a, at least 10 times worse. The problem with that is that it's not simple to understand because it is young black men killing other young black men and it is not easy to see the solutions. Not that the problem of police violence is easy to solve either, but it's much more complicated to see how the racial system works to create that kind of violence uh, among our young men. Can Valerie, I, do you wanna, sorry, sorry, I was gonna bring Valerie. Oh, Valerie please. Please. Apologies. If you wanted to comment on 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 this topic, both generally of I think um, she's muted. Oh. As I was listening um, to to Ray, I have an interesting uh, to me anyway uh, perspective on this because I grew up very poor, and looking at where my family was economically uh, when I grew up here in Chapel Hill and where I am now, certainly again as Teray said, I'm certainly not suggesting. Um, that I am anywhere near wealthy, but I am retired. I have a pension. Um, I am comfortable in how I live, but the terror aspect of my youth and in my senior years is not that different. What I worry about as it relates to 
my place, my movement in my community, in my society, even though for most people um, I'm known as it relates to um, racial injustice, some of my experiences would suggest to you that my living experiences now is no different than my lived experiences earlier in my life. And so for me to be the mother of two black sons who um, don't see any difference in how they're being treated by our criminal justice system from the young black males who don't live as they do, who are not, uh, I have one son who's an educator and one son who's a banker, but their experiences moving about society as it relates to the terror that we're speaking of is not very different from young black males who don't have the same economic status. So I'm trying to reckon with these two, um, these two characterizations that I'm hearing and finding myself um, somewhere in the middle. So can I jump in? Is that okay? So a couple things, um, and I think I'll start in reverse order of my original game plan because I want to speak to Valerie's great point. Um, you know, I, I, I think there's a fairly straightforward way to understand maybe what's going on with respect to the um, issues that upper class or solidly middle class or solidly working class black men in particular face vis-a-vis -vis law enforcement. And if one takes a kind of historical frame on the work that race does as, again, the kind of ideology that is part of a project wed to an, an ideological and political project wed to slavery. And I can't believe that I'm going back to slavery because this is something that I rail against in all of my 20th century courses. But I'm gonna do that just to give a sense of what the work, a sense of the work that race does as um, a construct. That race is not a construct that has existed for millennia as let's say someone like Hillary Clinton had suggested um, you know, a, a few years ago. Race is, as a construct, is fairly modern. Uh, it's a couple hundred years old, as we think of it. And it grows out of, um, in the American context, it grows out of um, the combination of slavery, colonialism, and liberalism, right? Those, those three things come together to give you the construct that is race. And in, in the liberal project that is the United States, and I mean liberalism in the philosophical sense, right? Not what we think of Democrats and Republicans, but in the liberal project that is the United States, obviously slaves were denied their basic rights, right? And so defenders of slavery constructed, worked to construct an, ideolo an ideology to explain why people of African descent were exceptions to American liberalism. And what that tells you before we've exited the Wayback Machine that's taken us back to the late 1700s and early 1800s is that race as an ideological construct comes about as a way to explain what's essentially economic and political inequalities. And these economic and political inequalities were created by human beings, but what race does is race treats these ideologies or it treat, treats the condition of black people in a bygone era 
uh, and other subjected groups such as American Indians. It treats their exploitation as part of a natural process, right? Because they are lesser peoples and thus not equipped for self-determination rather than a human process, right? Now, if you fast forward, race has changed over time, right? The parameters of in-groups and out-groups in the United States have changed even over the last century, um, maybe even the last 50 or so, so years. But the basic functionality of race as a language that explains why some people deserve to be at the bottom permanently, while other people deserve to be at the top permanently is still there in one form or another. Complicated and great to a great de degree by the great developments that happened politically in the post-emancipation era up through the modern civil rights movement. What I'm getting at is I might suggest that one of the reasons that black and brown men in particular, but also black and brown women who are from the better classes as people used to say a hundred years ago, um, the reason that they might find themselves literally in the crosshairs of police officers is on some level, a kind of form of misidentification along class lines because race functions as a shorthand for determining where one is in the pecking order. But the reality is in the last hundred years, it's a very ineffective shorthand. And I wanna belabor this point though, by another historical analogy from a, a, a example from a hundred years ago or less. It used to be the case that black Americans in the 20th century, probably up through my childhood when, when many black Americans complained about racism, one of the constant lines was that what racism was practically is white people's failure to make class distinctions among black people, right? And the subject of my first book in the National Urban League um, in its first 40 years, this was the recurring line of black civic reformers that the problem of racism was essentially white's failure because of eugenics to make the appropriate class distinctions among black people. When I was a, a boy up through my adolescence uh, between Atlanta, Georgia and New Haven, Connecticut, this was still a line, right? Cause this is part of the point of teaching your, your black boys and black girls to dress in a respectable manner, right? To make sure that people understand that you're a respectable person and to take away um, any invitation apart from race, of course, because that's the one you can't help, but take away any invitation for assault on your character or your rights or your dignity. Um, and again, I mean, we still see variations on this theme where people tend to associate reflexively black Americans with people who are dangerous, people who are not good coworkers, um, either because they lack a work ethic or they're just incompetent. And if you go down the checklist of criteria that constitute the stereotypes of black Americans, it looks very similar to the checklist of criteria that constitutes the stereotypes associated with, with poor people, period, right? Poor white people or any other group. And so I think one of the things that's going on with police officers and the extent to which black and brown men and women um, who are well-educated, um, quote unquote, as they used to say, respectable members of civil society uh, that, that places these, these men and women, unfortunately, in the crosshairs of police officers is the way that race and class are inextricably linked. Um, we don't talk about race in that way as a shorthand for class. But if you think about race in the context of its historical function and its broader social function, it's, I think, fairly easy to appreciate race and by extension racism as a kind of shorthand for where one fits 
in the class pecking order in this class stratified United States of America. The second point that I want to make, and can you believe I talked all that line all that time and I still have a second point, but I'm going to be quick about this one, is the matter of terror, I, I think is not disconnected from the economic positionality of black folk, right? Um, and you can see that both with this point I just made that race functions as shorthand to say where we fit in the in the class pecking order of the United States, but but in the Jim Crow era, the point there was a point to the terror, right? I mean, there's no doubt that black people were subjected to terrorism in the Jim Crow South, but the point of it was bound up to institutions of economic exploitation as much as it was anything else. I mean, it was bound up to the dictates of the crop lean system, among other things. There's no doubt that lower income. Uh, folk are subjected to terror at the hands of police officers. The point of that is wed, there, there is a method to that madness and it's wed to, you know, um, processes like gentrification. Um, and so, again, I mean, I think even the, the acts of terror reflect the class inequality in the society, not, not just a, a disembodied racial inequality, but the racial um, sentiments are bound up with class realities too. I think that there's a lot there, uh, a lot of thoughts that you've sparked, Toure. And whereas I 100% agree that there is this inextricable link between race and class, and that a lot of African-Americans, uh, if you look at the work of uh, um, Blue Chip Black by Karen Lacey, and she documents how African-Americans who are in the middle class and even arguably the upper middle class are constantly signaling their class position when they are in public because the association, the, the immediate assumption is you're black, so you're poor. Right, which is my but point. I, yeah, which is your point, which is exactly your point. But I also think that there are these two master narratives, I think is a term, of both race and class. And it's true that there is this inextricable link among them. And it is also true that some of this is because we are predominantly poor. And so uh, people's experience of black people, certainly if you, in, uh, I mean, other than your superstars like Oprah Winfrey or, um, you know, top basketball players, um, stars, movie stars and athletes, overwhelmingly the media portrays us as lower class, as poor. And so there is this expectation in people's minds, which to some extent is what uh, William Julius Wilson likes to call statistical discrimination. It's just more likely that that is going to be the case. So I think two things are going on here. And the fact that black students underachieve across the board, regardless of their socioeconomic status, is some indication that we're not just talking about class. We're talking about class and race, even though there's this uh, link between them. And on the question of terror, you know, we very deliberately moved into a poor black neighborhood after graduating from college and uh, raised our son with one foot in an elite private school and one foot in a poor, very violent black neighborhood. I would not say that his experience of terror is at all like the young man whom he grew up with. I would not say that. He has not been treated by the criminal justice system in the same way in which they have. It's simply not the case. 
In addition to which, I think if I were to talk to him right now, if you'll forgive me putting off the hat of scholar and putting on the hat of mom, I think he would find more uh, immediate threat from poor black men who've been victimized by the system and have turned to violence than he would immediately the criminal justice system. I don't want to suggest that he wouldn't be under threat from police officers just as Valerie's sons are. He would just as much as they are. But I, I don't think we want to collapse these two experiences. I think it's really important for us to recognize that there is a level of disadvantage that poor black men are experiencing, which is far more severe than that of middle-class black men. Can I just say one other thing in there? I mean, it's just a direct small point, I promise. Sure. Yeah. Um, Jackie, uh, you mentioned that um, you made reference to the um, disparity in graduation rates, I think, among black students versus white students. Um, yeah, uh, academic achievement, however you choose to measure it. Broadly, we'll, we'll go broadly. So, so my question is, and I say this partly because I've known a lot of people who are upper class, middle class, um, working class and poor. Um, isn't it often the case that poor people in schools are often presumed to be not very bright? I mean, because it's been my experience that, that and I saw this at the inner, in the inner city public school that I attended in New Haven, Connecticut in the mid eighties for a couple of years, just a couple of years, uh, that I saw a lot of very bright black and Puerto Rican kids who for a variety of reasons, um, you know, weren't given a fair shake. But one of the reasons they seemed not to be given a fair shake is of course the people presumed that um, they weren't worthy of a fair shake, right? People often enough, educators um, from teachers to uh, administrators presumed that these kids weren't going anywhere, right? And, and I'm not trying to pin this on the public school system because the public school system is, you know, public school teachers are um, wonderful, right? I mean, they, they deal with really challenging circumstances and are often overworked and certainly underpaid. But what I'm getting at is at the level of the individual, it's very common for people to presume that poor people are not very bright and not worthy of those resources. If one presumes, if one associates black people erroneously or not with poor people, and I think that's one of the things that happens as, as you have indicated, Jackie, then one of the things that might be contributing to this achievement gap is the reality of the extent to which race and class are inextricably linked um, because black people are presumed to be poor and even when they're not and poor people are presumed to be stupid ultimately uh and again i mean i'm not sure that that's that's a case that these two issues are inextricably are are, are separable uh fundamentally and, and again i actually did attend an inner city public school for a couple of years just a couple of years and i certainly benefited i think maybe like like your son on, on some level from tracking, one could say, right? That, that administrators made distinctions among those black students who they presumed were capable versus those who they presumed weren't. But class was a major facet of that. And I think is a major facet of it writ large beyond my, my personal experience. And one more time, this gets us right back to the point that race functions as a shorthand as civil rights leaders of yesteryear 
insisted, uh, you know, a hundred years ago and less for one's class positionality. Jamal, I assume you would like to let Valerie in. Yes, Valerie, if you have anything to add, and I also have kind of a, another question that they're out there. I do not. Okay. Um, so the one thing that this conversation has been pretty much, pretty much talking about is sort of the differential exposure to disadvantage among African-Americans on the basis of class that uh, racial inequality affects uh, African-Americans differently depending on where they are in kind of the class stratum. Um, so kind of taking that for granted, I, I love I, I love Valerie for you to speak in particular on how you think about policies to um, ameliorate inequality, given that like how, how do we how do we think about addressing not just disparities, but kind of overall inequality, knowing that um, overall racial inequality, knowing that things were going to hit harder for low-income Black Americans versus high-income Black Americans, even if everyone kind of does experience um, some disadvantage on, on account of racial inequality? Well, I'll just start by saying, um, to be sure, it's well documented that racial injustice and economic impairment are born of the same biases and disparities in education, health, and housing, and criminal justice. Um, as a policymaker, when I think about where we are as it relates to um, racial injustice, we know that um, if, if we look at where we are with, with the pandemic and we know that it um, disproportionately um, negatively affects African-Americans and uh, Latinx population, um, in, a, in a more um, negative way than the white population. And so people say, well, why do you think that happens? Well, we know that historically um, the access to affordable health care um, has been missing in, in those black and brown communities. And so you have people who have um, more health conditions that lead to um, them not being healthy. And then when you deny the access for um, the opportunities to be vaccinated or tested, um, you add to that level of um, that level of, of not being able to move through um, the pandemic. Um, when we talk about how we can um, ameliorate some of these situations, we know that if one doesn't have a job that provides health insurance and you can't afford it, then you're talking about families, not just one individual, but you're talking about families that lack opportunity um, to be healthy. Um, if, you're, if you can't ensure that your family is healthy, you're sending children to school who aren't healthy. Um, if you're not healthy, you're not gonna be able to acquire and sustain and maintain um, job opportunities. You're not going to be able to um, have access to all of the things that make good for your living and your family's living. And so when we talk about providing um, access to opportunity, we have to do that at the policy level. We have to ensure that healthcare 
is a right and not a privilege. If we want people to uh, move up the economic ladder, then you have to provide access um, as it relates to opportunity for education. It should not be that a student's zip code determines the level of education that that child receives, which leads on to um, the lack of opportunity for higher education. And even so, when we're talking about the ability to move from one educational level to the other, if the access to that opportunity is not there, if those job opportunities don't exist, how can we expect the same individuals to contribute to society rather than have society contribute to enhance their way of life? Um, as a policymaker, I'm looking at what has happened over the last 18 months as it relates to criminal um, justice and trying to figure out why it is that people who serve with me don't find it necessary to put policies in place that would ensure that one law enforcement officer watching another law enforcement officer um, injure a person to uh, the level of death and not have a responsibility to intervene. I can't understand why we can't as a society determine that we have too many guns in the hands of people who shouldn't have them and we should legislate how people obtain and keep and use firearms. I see that we are at a point where we overlook or ignore people as Therese said, because they're black and we think if they're black, they're poor. If they're poor, they don't have voices. If they're not um, being heard, then you can dismiss what is happening in their lives. So as I look at it, knowing that you cannot legislate hearts and minds, you can in a way that um, gets at the core or the root problems that we see so prevalent today and say this is not right and provide policies that ensure that fairness and equity will rule the day. So with that, I think we're going to move over to questions. I think that's where we are in our time now. So we have, I have kind of a list of all the questions we've been getting. And I'm going to start just from the very top. Um, I don't think I'll read who gave the question, but this person happens to be anonymous. Uh, but the question is, with disagreements on perspectives on how to best achieve racial justice, how can the movement for racial justice, racial justice best achieve organization and leadership to allow for more effective movement. And Jackie, I wanted to direct this question to you specifically because I know you do work um, thinking about around the black church. And I know you've, you've spoken quite a bit about the role the black church can, can play um, in current racial justice movement. So I'd love for you to take this question. Yes, I certainly think that that's an important question. And it's one I think as a black community, we, we in the black community have struggled with forever. Uh, there was lots of tension and 
conflict even in the civil rights movement between the NAACP and the Southern Christian Leadership Conference between SCLC and SNCC about strategies and uh, whether the focus ought to be on uh, voter registration or whether the focus ought to be on integration. So I think that's something that's not new. I think uh, Toure had a good point. The pressing shared experience of violence helped people come together. And I think we have a much more challenging experience now. And the role that the Black church has played throughout, certainly it had an outstanding role in the civil rights movement. And today it continues to really serve the poorest of the poor. In, and there was a study done in Philadelphia that showed that Black congregations, even though they were smaller, fewer in number, you know, fewer had fewer members, had less resources financially because their members were poor, that they provided more resources for people in their neighborhoods than did other congregations. And congregations in general did an, enor an enormous job. Uh, so it seems to me that that is one of the things that we really have to, uh, the, the black church has done so much. How do we again uh, weigh in on these issues? There was a study out from um, Pew Research Center just this month that confirms that overwhelmingly Blacks continue to identify themselves as highly religious. 66% identify as being Protestant Christians. Um, altogether, I think 75% uh, identify as being Christians. Here is a real engine that we need to use and the church needs to step up. It's an amazing, it's amazing what young people did over the summer with the kind of organization that they demonstrated getting people out into the streets in these massive marches. The church needs to do more along these lines. We need to not simply address this question of police violence, but some of the issues we put on the table here today. We haven't even talked about residential segregation, which is a source of so much harm. Uh, We've talked about the problem of education. How do we solve? Because education is so closely tied to uh, incarceration and tied to a lack of access to good employment. So we need the church to step up and do more and to really take the lead or to be a good partner. Uh, Valerie and Trey, do you have any thoughts on this question? I, oh, I was, I was going to say, I'd like to hear Valerie's thoughts. And I'd also like to live in your district, too. But um, I, I don't have much to say on this. I'll, so I'll, I'll keep it short. Um, it's, a, it's a tough fight ahead, uh, ultimately, because so many of the issues that impact Blacks disproportionately are certainly systemic, right? I mean, they're, they're no doubt structural. But so many of these issues fundamentally come down to problems of um, not just racial bias, not just issues such as implicit bias, but they come down to resources and you know lack thereof in many cases. They come down to what our wage structure looks like. Um, from my vantage point, if we want to live in a more racially just society, and I certainly do, that's why I got into this business, interestingly enough, uh, we absolutely need to take steps to make it easier for people to become essentially middle class, right? I mean, and this is, I think, on the spectrum of what Valerie had been talking about a while back, if I remember correctly, uh, and why I enjoyed what she had to say so much. 
but we need to take measures to boost people's wages. We need, you know, to push to make sure that healthcare is a citizenship right. We need to push to make sure that American workers are paid a living wage. Um, we need to push to make sure that there's affordable housing. Now, all of that stuff, I think many people can agree on, at least in the abstract, where it gets complicated is how you do it, right? And I'm not even talking about the funding part, but that's, you know, huge, as Valerie would know as a, as a practitioner. But I'm, I'm concerned personally about the emphasis on what feels to me a lot like an interracial trickle-down project that's ahead of us. Um, I'm a little concerned personally that among the things that may make it more difficult to improve the life chances of Black Americans um, who are poor and working class and even more and more middle-class Americans, irrespective of race even, are struggling these days. I'm, I'm concerned that we may take a path that focuses on enriching the top 10% of, of wage earners with the expectation that because Black Americans supposedly share an intra-racial trans class common interest, um, the expectation that the rewards of the top 10% of Blacks will trickle down to the bottom 20, 30, or 40%. And I'm not sure that capitalism works that way. Um, it certainly doesn't work that way on purpose. It did work that way to an extent during the New Deal and the post-war era when workers had a right to collect the bargaining and had a voice in managerial decisions and an opportunity to negotiate for living wages. But I don't know that it's worked that way in, in the era of neoliberalism, which follows the collapse of the Keynesian consensus. We have a question that is going back to the beginning of our conversation. Um, the question is, what is the basis for the claim that the distribution of wealth is more unequal for Blacks than any other group? The wealth distributions for Blacks and whites look virtually identical. Um, and I think this is just a challenge to a claim at the beginning that there is um, a greater differential of uh, wealth among Blacks and among whites. I think, I think Jackie, you had brought that up at the start if you wanted to, to reply to that. I did, and um, this is really from uh, a paper from William Julius Wilson, um, where he, I, I, I haven't reviewed it recently, so I can't actually put my finger on it, but um, it, is the, it is census data. So uh, I'm not quite sure why the claim is that the distribution is similar. I think Toure agreed that in fact, the interracial, she, he said it wasn't a, a large difference, but he agreed that the interracial gap, intraracial gap is largest among blacks. I think the uh, questioner um, is the, it's, it's sort of a long question, so I kind of truncated it a bit, but okay. uh, the kind of the second part of it is um, noting that 97% of white wealth is held by white households above the white median and this is not better than the maldistribution among Blacks. One quarter of white families have a net worth in excess of $1 million, while it's only 4% of Black families. So I think the question is in part about like the scale of the differential, right? Yeah, like so, uh, so I would certainly agree, no question, that the interracial differences dwarf the intraracial differences. Very true. If that is the point of the questioner, absolutely um, no challenge there at all. I, I, can I just add one other thought that 
is not really related to this question. And that is, you know, I really love, I love Sandy Darity's solution, proposed solution of reparations. His book, From Here to, uh, From Here to Equality. That's really what we need to do, right? We need to compensate black people for all of the racial disadvantages we've experienced from slavery through Jim Crow, through the inequalities of the New Deal up to uh, the current day. And that would do a lot towards closing these gaps and having the means to do a lot to address some of the other social problems uh, such as academic underachievement and mass incarceration. But, um, you know, I, 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 I fear not likely to happen. It's, it's just thinking about reparations, it's, it's, it's I don't know, maybe funny is not the right word, but it's sort of, if you, if you imagine the kind of world in which reparations are possible, it's probably also a world where we're also um, working to deal with the not just the comp comparative inequalities, but the overall inequality, right? We're building a more equal society in general. And then and while doing that also kind of narrowing disparities. Um, but since you can see the connection, you know, the, the, the intertwining of economic and racial inequality there as well, since we're not really currently um, on the path of reducing these overall inequalities, the odds that we get amelioration for these particular racial inequalities is also pretty low. Um, I'm gonna go to another question. Um, let us see. Uh, this, this is going to, this is, this is sort of a kind of, it's, a, it's a directly the question about teaching these sorts of ideas. How would you teach high school students about this link between race and class? Um, anyone is welcome to answer that. I know Teray has students, but um, I'm sure everyone has experience. Uh, well, Jack, you have students as well. Yeah, I, I, I'll just talk about a program that we have uh, done with Harvard University for about 17 years. And um, I'm not suggesting that, I, I, it would be great if this could go to scale. So we have a Saturday morning meeting, a seminar uh, where students, high, black high school students from all over the city uh, meet and they have a seminar with a, uh, with a Harvard professor uh, six Saturdays out of the year. And for two or three Saturdays before the seminar, they meet with Harvard undergraduates to mull over, discuss, and really get uh, a handle on an assigned reading, which it, this is a Du Bois, W.E.B. Du Bois Society, uh, which is hosted by the Hutchins Center at Harvard. And that is really a uh, place where high school students are able to grapple with some of these issues. And we haven't specifically done the connection between race and class because the professors drive the topic that we deal with. But I think in that kind of situation, in a seminar situation, you are really able to begin to have students read challenging material and get them to uh, grapple with questions like this. There's also a possibility here in Massachusetts to do something about having um, black history taught in a, a curriculum taught in all of the schools. 
that's another avenue where one might be able to begin to deal with this. But this is difficult because these are complex issues and most of the scholarship on it is not going to be readily accessible to high school students. But I, I had one other thought that I'd also like to throw in here, Jamal, and that is, I think what UNC is doing right here is so important because I think, the, I, I don't want to be Pollyannish and suggest that we can solve all of these problems simply by educating people. But I think the lack of education before we started our conversation, Toure was talking about the lack of information that he was finding so surprising that people didn't realize that Black people started to move to the uh, Democratic Party as a result of the New Deal because many benefits did flow to Blacks from the New Deal, despite the racial inequalities that were inherent and built into the New Deal. We've got to do a better job of educating people. The lie of the lost cause, which has taken root in the South and which predominates. One Harvard student, after he had taken a class at Harvard said, look, um, I can't believe the lies my textbook taught me. He was schooled in the South. We've got to do something about really educating people so that even though it's not going to turn uh, the people who stormed the Capitol on January 6th into racial justice warriors, at the same time, there is a persuadable middle who are ill-informed. We've got to do something more of this kind of stuff to inform people about the truths about what has really happened in America. So this question is directed uh, towards Senator uh, Fushi. Um, the uh, questioner asked, I'd like to hear you talk about your experience on the police force and how that informs your policy goal for racial justice, what types of ideal legislative solutions might influence uh, the biases we see? So um, when I worked for the police department uh, for a long time, I worked um, as a jailer and a clerk. But when I became a, an administrator, it gave me the opportunity to look at policies that existed and to see how those policies were used to maybe not intentionally um, not give African-American officers the ability to rise in rank, mm -hmm. but they were the kinds of systemic uh, things that we, we see in all of our institutions. Um, they require um, certain aspects of one's employment that often did not come with the kinds of experiences that African-Americans brought uh, when they applied for the process. Also noticed that one of the things that we use was written communication. And we know, all of us know that some people write as they talk, um, but if, these people are communicating with you, you understand very well what they're saying. Because it is not um, written in such a way that um, every I is dotted, every T is crossed, um, punctuations are where they should be and they don't appear where they should not. That does not mean that a person is not capable of leading. 
that a person is not capable of serving and certainly that a person is not capable of protecting. And so being in a position where I could call some of these things to light, uh, it gave officers who otherwise would not have been given the opportunity to rise in rank, those opportunities. And once given the chance to lead, they showed that they were competent, that they were caring, and that they knew how to interact with people in those communities, because many of them came from those communities. So I think that what I saw and what I see today is that when we take the opportunity to listen, um, to hear, to learn, to understand that we all have different lived experiences, but we have commonalities that um, outweigh what our differences are. And I say that to say that all of us, when we're in our homes, we want to feel that we're not gonna have intrusions. We wanna feel that we are not going to be injured. We wanna feel that when we leave our homes and we drive to the corner, that we're not gonna be stopped for something um, that makes no sense. What I, what I learned from that as to take forward as a policymaker is simply this. All of us want to be treated fairly and justly. So simply put, if we treat others as we want to be treated, if we respect a person as an individual, we respect a person as a human being, and we have great expectations rather than low expectations, then we all move forward. And I don't think that um, that's something I learned from the police department. I learned that from home. I learned that in church. I learned that from just interacting with other folk. It's a, it's a simple rule, uh, but there has to be a, a thought about um, how we equitably provide and ensure justice. You know, it's not always about equality. I may not need the same amount as you to get where I need to be, but I do want you to consider my situation equitably. Help me to get what I need to be where I need to be or where I want to be. And that's what I've learned from those experiences of 20 years from working at the police department, watching people who really cared about the communities and who cared about the people who lived in those communities such that um, we didn't see the kind of things that we're seeing today. But when you bring people from other communities to serve a community where they don't get to know people, they don't have a connection, there's not a relationship, they come in, they do their jobs and then they go back home those are not the kinds of relationships that will ensure that people get to know uh, law enforcement and law enforcement gets to know the people. And I know that's long-winded, but that's my response. Uh, this next question is for uh, you, Ture. It, it asks, your book challenges the idea that current racial disparities in wealth 
are largely the result of liberal policymakers' failure to acknowledge and account for the impact of racism on Black Americans. So your book challenges that idea. Um, if so, what is it that causes those disparities? Well, so um, thank you for that question. That kind of feels like one of my friends asked it, but I don't know that that's the case. But anyway, so uh, as, as the questioner pointed out, I challenge the idea that the failure of liberal social policy to redress racial disparities is owed to liberal policymakers class reductionism. And the point that I make in the book is that in the post-war era, liberal policymakers certainly weren't terribly interested in the disproportionate impact of the structural change uh, of the US structural shift of the US economy on blacks, right? Liberal policymakers actually tended to look past the class roots of racial inequality, uh, deindustrialization, automation. Uh, and then we can extend that to the, uh, once we get to the neoliberal era, the decline of the union movement um, and public sector retrenchment. Again, liberal policymakers tended to look past those economic forces, disproportionate impact on blacks, and instead tended to oscillate between two nodes that both came down to race. Uh, the two nodes that shaped liberal policymakers' response to black poverty came down to either race or racism in the post-war era. Uh, racism, I think we can understand what that would mean, but race in this context actually would refer to constructs that have the patina of, uh, that are culturalist, I should say, that constructs that are culturalist, presumptions that poverty is owed to black cultural dysfunction rather than the decline of good collar, good, uh, well-paying blue collar jobs. And considering how many policymakers discussed, um, viewed culture. I mean, this is going to include someone like, let's say, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, who treated culture the way that an ethnic pluralist would, which is what he was, a form of race, right? I mean, the idea that culture can take on a life of its own, independent of the proximate forces, proximate material forces that shape it, isn't really what culture is supposed to be. It's more like what race is supposed to be. Um, this is also going to be one of the elements that when we move up to the lifetimes of maybe more of the participants or, or um, in this discussion, uh, this is also going to be part of the backdrop, you know, for, uh, I hate to say it, but, you know, former President Bill Clinton's following through on Ronald Reagan's racialized war on poor people uh, by way of welfare reform. Uh, in its many forms, from uh, the elimination of AFDC to the destruction of public housing and, and so forth. So um, the point that I make is that there is a great misconception about the roots of the failings of post-war liberalism vis-a-vis uh, -vis Blacks. Uh, and it's tragic because in many ways at this moment, because of that misconception, it looks like we're not learning the right lessons. And the right lessons, I would say, were laid out by the organizers of the 1963 March on Washington and um, likewise, the um, drafters of the Freedom Budget for All, which identified, as A. Philip Randolph said at the 1963 March on Washington, yes, we support a, a fair employment practices bill, what's eventually gonna be affirmative action. But he said, and I'm paraphrasing, 
what good is access to a job if profit geared automation and I'll throw in deindustrialization eliminates the job altogether, right? It's not enough to create access, which is what the Johnson administration did. And Lyndon Johnson, because I was born in the 70s, is my favorite president for that reason. Uh, my dad would disagree. But, but anyway, um, the Johnson administration did a good job, a pretty good job of opening up opportunities. But unfortunately, in, in housing and, and employment by way of anti-discrimination policies, but unfortunately, it eschewed efforts to redress the disproportionate impact on Blacks of automation, deindustrialization, and then as we move forward, public sector retrenchment uh, and the decline of the union movement, right? All of those things impacted Blacks disproportionately. And you can throw in, if we want to take it up to where we are now, you can see the transition from brick and mortar stores to e-commerce is impacting black folk disproportionately, right? Because black people work heavily in retail and moving away from physical stores towards um, uh, e-commerce has a disproportionate impact on black workers, particularly, you know, um, middle and lower income black workers. So um, that's, that's the basic point that I made that, that I advance in the book, plus I complicate the narrative on the limitations of the New Deal. And I, and I do want to want to say this, I mean, the New Deal's limitations are long well known. Um, it strikes me that it's, it's, it's actually disconcerting to me that many people seem to imagine that it's only been in the last 10 years or less that professional historians have been aware of and, and, and social scientists, and we can throw in civil rights activists too, but have been aware of the, the failure of the New Deal to distribute its, its rewards evenly across racial lines. I learned about this my first year in college in 1988. So there's nothing new about this and it wasn't new then, right? But what's, what's alarming about it uh, from a presentist standpoint about, again, the, um, the failure, the, the insistence that this is a, a recent discovery when it in fact isn't, is that the current discourse uh, that assigns the New Deal's racial limitations simply to some abstract notions of white privilege or some other kind of racial sickness um, overlooks the fundamental economic uh, you know, imperatives that drove those disparities that came out of the New Deal. The fact of the matter is the majority of people who were excluded from the Social Security Act by way of the agricultural um, exemptions for agricultural and domestic workers were actually white. 74% of the workers who were excluded from Social Security by that exemption were white workers. Blacks were 24% of the workers and Blacks were only 10% of the total population. But that exemption was owed in large part to the fact that the American Farm Bureau, the largest lobby uh, in agriculture, didn't want to pay the tax. And that's one of the reasons that the majority of people, I mean, that's the key reason that the majority of people who were excluded from that, um, from Social Security by way of those exemptions were white. It's likewise the case, is my last point, that redlining policy, as messed up it, uh, as that was, and I, again, learned about that in the 80s, once again, granted, my dad is a professor. So I actually kind of learned about it in high school, so I had an unfair advantage. But redlining policy was illustrative, not of some abstract white skin privilege, but it was due to the fact 
that the New Deal's overarching purpose was to write a list in capitalist economy and thus New Dealers brought in capitalists to draft the legislation. So redlining and FHA mortgage policy was the brainchild of Homer Hoyt, who had been president of the um, National Real Estate Association. And he took best business practices and made it law. But the point of this was uh, the, the New Deal's follow through on this best business practice was in part, in large part, owed to the fact that the New Deal's overarching objective was to write a listing capitalist economy, right? And that's that was best business practices at the time. It's profoundly problematic and certainly consequential. But to be honest, the consequences, it's the last thing I'm gonna say in this, the consequences owed, uh, derived from redlining policy are far worse than wealth accumulation. In fact, I'm, I've been taken aback by the fact that that's the star of the show. That was not the star of the show um, when, when I first learned about it. The star of the show was that redlining policy made it very difficult, if not impossible, for Black workers to follow those good, those well-paying blue-collar jobs from central cities to the suburbs following World War II. And it's not just home ownership that plays an important part in generating wealth for working people. It's actually having a job that pays well. Among other things, you have to be able to qualify for a mortgage. And that means you got to make decent money and have good credit. And in the absence of well-paying jobs, then you know, it, you're not going to be able to, to own a house anyway. So this is what I get out of the book, and I'll stop there. So uh, uh, Jamal, is it OK if I share some thoughts? So our Katz Nelson certainly argues that it is that race and racial, racial animus was part of what drove the deal that was struck by Southern uh, Democratic uh, Congress people, congressmen predominantly, in crafting the New Deal. So I, I and and I think that you know again we come back to this inter intertwining of race and class, but I, I think it would be really, we'd be missing something in uh, assuming that all of this is explained simply in economic terms. And let me use a current example. Not to, quite sure that's what I said, but what I am saying is that the current well. disposition is to insist that all of it is, is determined by racial terms. Okay. And that's not Fair statistically enough. sustainable. Fair enough, I'm not, I'm not making that argument either. Um, so the that example I was going to give was the um, uh, uh, the opioid crisis and the difference in how the United States has responded to the opioid crisis versus the crack epidemic, right? The fact that it becomes a public health crisis. Now, it's true it's on a much larger scale because Blacks are a small proportion of the population, but the very way in which it is conceived and the resources that are, there's an attempt to mobilize resources to address the opioid crisis, whereas the response to the crack epidemic was locked them up. It but, seems to me, I, I haven't, I, I can't say I've seen any scholarly analysis of this, but it seems to me just on the face of it, perhaps a scholarly analysis would prove otherwise, that race has something to do with how we respond to the ramifications of things which are on the face of it race neutral. Another example, the difference between sentencing for 
crack uh, cocaine and powder cocaine. And the huge number of black men who are incarcerated before people begin to pay attention, had those young men been white in the same proportions, I understand that uh, young white men who are high school dropouts face similar problems with incarceration as do young black men who are high school dropouts. But the figures are just so hugely disproportionate with blacks being almost 40%, black men being almost 40% of the incarcerated. And we're only about 11 to 13% of the population. Would that have happened? Would it have been allowed to endure for so long had these young men been white? I, I just want to highlight the fact that there and I'm not trying to suggest to Ray that you are denying that race is an issue. I just want to highlight the fact that there are two master narratives at work here. And even in the case of high school students, of, of students doing poorly, despite black students doing poorly, despite their socioeconomic status, one of the possible culprits uh, comes from the work of Claude Steele, stereotype threat, sure. which is based in one's social identity. It isn't just a apply to black people, it applies to women. In fact, I love one of Steele's examples. He said, you know, if you take white men and put them on a basketball court and before they start shooting hoops, you remind them that, black, that white men can't jump, they underperform versus a group whom you don't give that prompt to. So the whole, the power of the social identity and the fact that race could be at work in the underachievement of high income black students, I think is very much a live possibility. Well, I think you'd wanna say not race, but you'd wanna say racism, right? Might be at work rather than again, race um, because race would only be at work if Charles Murray is right. Racism by contrast certainly would be a factor. Uh, and, and that was the point that I had made specifically about misidentification among other things and the presumptions that some educators might have about black and brown people equating them with low achievers in much the same way they might equate poor people with low achievers. But just to belabor this point for a hot second, um, the, there's long been a heroin you know, crisis in the United States, right? I mean, that, that would certainly predate the opioid crisis. Lots of white people had been heroin addicts um, in the 60s and 70s uh, and 80s and, and black people too, of course. The, my understanding that the interest in the opioid crisis came not quote unquote when white people were addicts, but, but thanks in part to prescription drugs being a major source of the opioid uh, crisis when upscale people became, uh, you know, were, were swept up into the opiate crisis, the opioid crisis. Surely, when but people... surely, they were, surely they were also swept up into the powder cocaine uh, Hence the disparity, though. They were the primary users. And your point about the disparity in crack cocaine sentencing versus powdered cocaine, uh, powder cocaine is exactly what I'm getting at, right? That the people who use it, I, I, I want to say, and I might be wrong about this, my pop culture chops aren't as sharp, sharp as they used to be during the pandemic. But I believe early on, Whitney Houston had said, had taken exception to the view that someone suggested that she did crack because she said crack is what poor people do. Um, so yeah, I, so point, I, I don't know anything about hard drugs. 
just so you know, I'm part of the just so you know generation. But anyway, so that sentencing, that sentencing disparity is as much a reflection on the class background of the users um, as it is anything else. Doesn't explain the reaction to the disproportionate racial impact not being addressed earlier. So let us agree to disagree on this one. I think I might have missed part of the point, but sure, that's fine. Uh, we're technically out of time, but I do did want to ask just this one last question, and I wanted everyone to answer it real quickly. It is, um, I'm curious whether the panelists think the national political climate is conducive to progress in achieving racial justice. Um, so I'll say that again, whether the climate, national political climate is conducive to achieving racial justice. So Valerie, if you wouldn't mind um, starting off and then Jackie and then Ture, and then I think we'll wrap this up. Very briefly, I have to say that I hope so. I would not do this work if I did not believe that there is hope that we can move forward. Um, there certainly some things have to be put behind us, but I think that we're on uh, that trajectory and I'm looking forward to being a part of the solution. I love your response, Valerie. I must admit, I wish I were as uh, optimistic. Um, it seems that right now the national political atmosphere is not conducive to anything positive. Um, we have such stalemate in Congress. I mean, there's a, a, a very a thin Democratic uh, majority, but a, a sliver thin. Um, so it, it, it seems to me, and there is such polarization, um, and people are so tightly locked. And another thing I love about this program, that the opportunity to talk to people from different perspectives, because people are so tightly locked into their sound bubbles, and that further uh, makes their views more and more extreme in one direction. So it is very troubling to me as I look ahead. Um, I, I, the encouraging, the most encouraging thing was really the kind, the massive protest movement that we had uh, across the summer in 2020. And that raises some hope in my mind, um, but the polarization in the country and the stalemate in Congress does not make me optimistic. Um, I second uh, Jackie's reflections on the implications of the stalemate in Congress and the like, but I would, I would say more directly in response to the question, it depends on what you mean by racial justice. If what racial justice refers to is us as a nation taking steps to improve the lives of poor and working class black Americans. No, I don't, I don't think that's likely to happen. If what races racial justice means, if our end game there is increasing economic opportunities for well educated relatively privileged black people. Yeah, I, I think that that has a much better shot of happening. All right. Well, with that, I think Sorry. Well, I, I was simply uh, agreeing with Tourette. Um, 
with that, I think we are finished. Thank you to the panelists. Thank you to the audience, UNC. Again, there is uh, a survey you can take and ask uh, your political views and what you think of the uh, of the discussion. Uh, optional, but the organizers would really appreciate it if you uh, if you took the survey. So uh, thank you, and uh, we hope you enjoyed this discussion. <laughs>